Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to the show today, I want to let you know about the big changes here on our team. We've now got six editors in both Asia and Africa producing some great journalism every day on what the Chinese are doing throughout the developing world. No one provides this kind of daily coverage about the Global South from the Global South. And that's why governments, think tanks, and investors around the world read our newsletter every day and rely on our website. If you'd like to find out what they're reading and get a truly unique perspective on China and the world, subscribe today. Subscriptions are super affordable and you get 30 days free just to try it out. So go to chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Once again, that's chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witts University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on China-Africa relations through training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by China Global South's managing editor, Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, August is normally supposed to be a quiet time. Everybody is supposed to go on vacation. Things are supposed to be quiet. It's our chance to recharge that is not happening, Kobus, by any measure. And this month it is not happening. And this week it is not happening by any measure. Let's talk about some of the things that have happened this week and that are really in the midst of still happening. Number one, Kenyans went to the polls this week to elect a new president. At the time of this recording, we do not have a winner. You may have a winner by the time you listen to this, but we still don't know who has won. There are implications for the Chinese all over this election in terms of the debt, the infrastructure, future financing, lots of different aspects. We're going to get into that. And then also, this was the week that U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken unveiled the new U.S. strategy for sub-Saharan Africa. We talked about that in our last show with Afrobarometer's Joseph Asunka. We're going to talk about it again today. But in the time since our last discussion about this, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs has responded to the new policy. Spokesman Wang Wenbing in Beijing on Tuesday, he said, and this is very interesting, Kobus, I'm going to want to get your response to this. He really downplayed it. They didn't come back with the fiery rhetoric in many respects that have now come to shape so much of the U.S.-China relationship. Let's hear what he said here. So, and I'm quoting, it's not important what the U.S. says. What matters is how African people see China-Africa cooperation. The tangible outcomes of China-Africa practical cooperation throughout the years are there for all to see. They shall not be denigrated or smeared by anyone. Africa can very well do without so-called partners who seek to sow discord and merely pay lip service. No matter what the U.S. says, the railways, highways, ports, and buildings China has helped Africa to construct will always be there. Kobus, when you heard that response, what was your, what was your reaction? Um, you know, it's it's of a it's of a, a, a pattern. You know, kind of. I, I you know, I think we're all very very used to any kind of 
you know US Africa engagement being being framed as as you know as essentially kind of a, a, a kind of a plot you know by by China we one sees us frequently from from um, from spokespeople but it was interesting how on the one hand the even though you know kind of the the, the US policy in, in reality tended to de-emphasize the China side um, you know, in, in comparison to the Trump era, um, the reporting of it was still U.S. takes on China and Africa with new policy. Um, and so therefore, then also the response from China was essentially, you know, taking that as red. Um, so, so, so it was kind of like everyone playing their part, you know, even as I think on both sides, they try, like, they sometimes try to kind of step away from that, from that very, like, kind of horse racy narrative. Um, but the horse race narrative is still very useful for both sides, you know, so, so they tend to kind of slip back into it when, when they need to. Yeah, that, that was evident that that was very much how the coverage was framed, even though the U.S. apparently tried to go out of its way to downplay the Chinese aspect of the new strategy. Let's talk about debt. Uh, lots of going on in the debt space. Right before the trip, and we mentioned this in a previous show and also in some of our news coverage, United States Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, she gave an interview to the Associated Press, and she dropped this line that really made everybody in the China-watching space just groan with pain. As you look at what China's doing in Africa, you need to look at the debt trap that African countries, many of them, have faced because of those relationships with China. And that was very interesting, and we talked about that in our show with Giraud last week, Again, just how tone deaf it was, in, in part because it comes literally less than a week after China led a landmark debt restructuring deal with Zambia, where it co-chaired the official creditor committee with France that, uh, that operated under the auspices of the G20. So it was just odd that she would choose that week of all weeks to talk about debt traps when, it, when in that week. The Chinese, together with the French and other bilateral creditors, wiped out $2 billion of bilateral debt. Now, this is only bilateral debt from other countries and policy banks. It does not include private creditors, but it does set the stage for the discussions with bondholders that will start very soon. Now, remember, this is very important for Zambia because Zambia was the first country in the pandemic era to default on a portion of its eurobond debt. And at the same time, Kobus, and I'd like to get your take on this, the Chinese have been evolving their response to the debt trap critique. And so the Chinese foreign ministry, in this case, Hua Chunying, who is another spokesperson at the foreign ministry, she responded to the comments made by Linda Thomas-Greenfield. And, and you noted that she's taken a more textured, nuanced response to it. And at the same time, we saw an article that came out three or four days later in People's Daily that built on Hua Chunying's statements at the foreign ministry and really is now laying out the Chinese response to the debt trap critique in a much more organized fashion than what they've done prior. So it really breaks down into three different parts. And we, we broke this down and analyzed it this week uh, on the site. So if you'd like to see that, go to chinaglobalsouth.com. But let me kind of give you the broad overview, and then I'd like to get your take. And then also we're going to ask our guest on this today as well. So part number one, it's not us, it's them. So there's a lot of new research coming out from NGOs, from think tanks and others that are highlighting that the debt problem in Africa is not a Chinese debt problem. It is now increasingly a problem with private creditors that own the majority of the debt. And as Debt Justice, a London-based NGO, found out or discovered or revealed, 
that the interest rates on the private debt is almost twice as much as on the Chinese debt. And so the Chinese foreign ministry and Chinese state media are now really leaning into these data points to make their case. The other part that they're doing is that they're saying that debt is an extension of geopolitics, that all of the critiques coming from people like Ambassador Thomas Greenfield, it's not because they're really concerned about Africa, it's not because they're concerned about Zambian debt, it's because they want to hit the Chinese, and it's about the geopolitical struggle between the U.S. and Chinese. That's point number two. Point number three that they're making in their more refined argument today is that China is actually the good guy. We heard that in spokesman Wang Wenbing's statements, that it's the infrastructure that China's building, the financing that China's providing. They're filling the the infrastructure financing deficits in Africa. So don't accuse us of creating debt traps. We're actually providing badly needed capital. That is the three-point argument. Kobus, let's get your take on that very quickly. I think this is an interesting kind of direction for them to go in, and I think it's a pretty it's a pretty formidable one, actually. Um, you know, it because the you know it, it makes a point that I think that that we've been making sometimes, but I you know kind of people much more informed and you know kind of more in in that world have been have been pointing out as, as well, is that with all of this discussion about the Chinese role in in, in African debt crises and, and global South debt crises. Like the the bondholders and particularly the you know kind of the 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 larger kind of financial the the financial world in in, in places like London and New York is actually you know is 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 kind of getting off scot free you know kind of in the process so so you know it, it's going to be very interesting to see how the bondholders are being framed as this as this um, the debt nego- renegotiation process goes on. What is interesting is that this week um, UN Women. Um, Big women's big women's group at at, at the UN um, withdrew their um, their a working relationship they had with with BlackRock, a big asset manager, and you know for a bunch of reasons they you're essentially saying that BlackRock has, has been using them as as ways to kind of feminist wash you know kind of their 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 own work, and there was a whole bunch of cr- different criticisms of of BlackRock, including that they that they they're too invested in weapons trade and and so on. But one of the interesting things is one of the things that they they noted was its role in the the Zambia debt crisis and particularly its refusal to to stop um, you know kind of debt repayments when you know kind of when you know states like bilateral lenders were actually stopping debt repayments you know from from Zambia so so it's it's going to be very interesting to see how this story is kind of get reframed you know kind of like to towards towards this issue of of debt particularly in the context also that that what um what people we said like a lot, a lot of kind of debt campaigners have been have been pointing out is that that Africa actually needs a lot more financing you know, but the, but the problem isn't that Africa is lending too much. The problem is that that the debt that's available to Africa is too expensive, um, and you know, so so you know, and, and you know, kind of these kind of like commercial bond debt, you know, kind of is is exhibit A, you know, kind of in in, in that discussion. So it's it's interesting to see how it's developing. Well, let's deep dive now into all three of these topics with an expert who's following them closely. Emmanuel Matambo is the research director at the Center for Africa-China Studies at the University of Johannesburg and joins us today from Johannesburg. A very good evening to you, Emmanuel. Good evening to you, Eric, and uh, good evening to, to Kobus. Thank you very much for inviting me. It is such an honor. It's so great to have you back, especially during this very busy time right now. Before we get into Zambia and some of the other issues related to the U.S., you have been following the elections in Kenya very closely this week. 
Let's get your take on the dynamics that are going on there. And again, also thinking about the Chinese undertones in some of the campaigns between William Ruto and Raila Odinga, the two leading presidential candidates. What's your take right now? And what are, what are your assessments and insights on the Kenyan campaign and the Kenyan election now before it's been resolved? What has been happening in Kenya is quite interesting because we see here that the president is pitted against his own uh, deputy, deputy in, in, in essence, by uh, Uhuru Kenyatta's uh, support for Raila Odinga. So that is quite interesting. And um, the worst case scenario, obviously, is that it might destabilize the country to a considerable degree. It has already done, although what has happened hasn't really escalated into violence between uh, uh, the, the, the Kikuyus and, and the Kalenjins from uh, whom uh, we, uh, Deputy President William uh, Ruto hails. So that is uh, that is quite uh, interesting. And then uh, we also see that William Ruto has, as he calls himself, a hustler, wants to present himself as an anti-establishment person, so to say, because in Kenya there are certain families that have ruled the country by and large since independence. One of those countries, of course, is the Kenyatta uh, one of those families, sorry, is the Kenyatta family of uh, whom the the uh, the, the head uh, Jomo Kenyatta was the first president of of Kenya, and then Raila Odinga's father, Oginga Odinga, was actually uh, the deputy president of Kenyatta for some time. So it is like they're trying to they, what Ruto is trying to expose is that these are people who are kind of monopolizing the leadership of the country between the two families, and I'm trying to to break into that. I'm not a spoiled child, so to say. I am a self-made man. That is why he has styled himself as a, as a hustler. So that might appeal to the young people of Kenya who do not have any sentimentalism towards people who fought against the, the British to gain uh, Kenya's independence. So that is how uh, uh, Ruto is trying to present himself. Raila Odinga obviously will try to sell the fact that he has served the country before as, uh, as, as Prime Minister and he also tried to ride on the fact that he has the support of the incumbent, incumbent president so in the in the in the in the in the long run, uh, people are trying to see that uh, some 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 independent uh, researchers in Kenya and especially independent media in Kenya are seeing Kenya as Kenyans as being in an unfortunate position of having to choose between the lesser evils, whichever of the lesser evils might be between uh, uh, Raila Odinga and um, or, uh, William Ruto, because both of them are tainted uh, individuals. So that is a quandary in which uh, the voters in Kenya find themselves. When it comes to the issue of uh, China's import in the in the election, you you note that there has been a lot of opacity regarding Kenya's external debt to to China. Uh, a friend of mine, Edwin Okoth, who is a who is a, an investigative journalist in Kenya, has written uh, a report about how the contraction of debt from China, especially under the leadership of Uhuru Kenyatta in Kenya, was shrouded in mystery and it shrouded in mystery. Precisely because the deals were actually a bad deal on the side of uh, on the side of Kenya. So we hope that Uhuru Kenyatta, William Ruto, sorry, hopes that if he comes into power, those are just some of the things that he might want to to to, to expose uh, as 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 regard um, the leadership of uh, Uhuru Kenyatta and the debt that he was contracting from from China. But it will be interesting to see just how much distance he's going to give himself between what Uhuru Kenyatta did and his role 
call him, uh, himself uh, that is uh, William Ruto as the deputy. I mean, um, how much of, the, of those uh, deals did he know? How much uh, importance, if any, did he have in, in those particular deals? So that is what we... That is what it would be interesting for us to note. But then, in the in the long run as well, what what we expect is that uh, what is happening in Kenya at the moment might not spill, uh, might not escalate into what happened in two thousand seven, leading into two thousand and eight, because uh, there is actually a high risk that there might be some violence. Because I do not see any of the members conceding defeat, unless obviously the defeat will be quite handily and undeniable. And then uh, we also hope that uh, we we hope ultimately that it would not lead into the violence that happened uh, all those years ago. And the issue of, of Chinese migration to Kenya, and particularly Chinese, uh, you know, fulfilling low-level low jobs or like, like low-wage jobs, I mean, um, you know, like, like, for example, the like selling of food on the street and so on became an election issue, right? I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and this kind of issue, of this, this focus on Chinese migration. Thank you. That has been uh, a major thing, not only in Kenya, but even in my native country of Zambia. And it depends on the political sympathies that one has. When I visited Kenya in 2019, I discovered quite some interesting things. And I went to non-state multinational corporations from, from China and asked the Kenyan workers who are working in those particular multinational corporations to just give me an idea of exactly the type of migration that they are getting from China. And I realized... Uh, uh, two things: the people who are aligned to the to the government, such as the Africa Policy Initiative, uh, Africa Policy Initiative, for example, and the Kajado community in Kenya that has um, benefited from from Chinese migration. Uh, those people are more likely to have sympathies towards uh, to towards Chinese migration in Kenya. But then, obviously, those who are detractors of China's um, presence in Kenya, such as independent media societies and uh, the, 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 those who are opposed to President Uhuru Kenyatta, those are, were more likely to actually put the number of Chinese who are doing uh, those small-scale businesses that Kenyans can really feel to be a little bit higher. And it happened in Zambia as well uh, when from 2006 to 2011 when uh, the late President Michael Chufiasata of Zambia was campaigning against the uh, movement for multi-party democracy in Zambia. He was... Um, um, you was in the habit of inflating the number of Chinese who are doing small-scale businesses in Zambia. So yes, there is a troubling reality. We cannot mask over or gloss over the reality that yes, indeed, we have seen the increasing numbers of Chinese nationals who are coming to Africa, not bringing any scarce skills that Africans lack. But then, obviously, those numbers have been played up by those who are trying to detract from the, uh, from the relationship that African incumbent governments have with uh, with China. So it is kind of a, a murky issue, but uh, yeah, a, a troubling uh, reality that Africans really have to look at. Let's turn our attention now to debt, uh, to your home country in Zambia. As I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, China co-led the creditor committee that came up with a $2 billion uh, debt restructuring deal. Most of the $2 billion will come from Chinese creditors. The vast majority, in fact, I think it was like $1.6, $1.8 billion out of the $2 billion will be canceled. And this is very important because it's really a landmark deal. And that's the way that the Financial Times, that Bloomberg, or that a number of other media entities, they described it because we have never seen at this scale the Chinese cancel 
both concessional and commercial debts. They have canceled zero interest loans and grants, but really been very reluctant to cancel their commercial and their concessional loans. As you were following the Zambian debt restructuring process, what was your impression of the outcome and did it meet your expectations? Well, first of all, we have to uh, create some context uh, through which uh, China made uh, these very important strides. Leading up to the August 2021 election, one of the one of the concerns that the youth vote has had, especially in Zambia, was just how much in debt uh, Zambia was to China. You would remember that in 2018, the Zambian government, under the leadership of Edgar Lungu, forced the IMF to withdraw Alfredo Bodini, who was the IMF representative to Zambia. And that happened because Alfredo Bodini raised concerns about Edgar Lungu's unsustainable contraction of de- external debt from China. And the Zambian government hounded Alfredo Bodini from uh, from the country at the time when the Zambian government was actually seeking some relief from the IMF. So that was that presented Zambia as as, as clumsily at a diplomatic diplomatic level. So now Akainde Hichilema, who is our current president, was seen as by the Zambian voters as someone who would bring sanity, sanity sorry, to Zambia's uh, contraction of date. And uh, that was... Um, seen mostly towards China because China owes a third of Zambia's, uh, Zambia's external, external debt. So Ichilema was seen, to put it uh, in, in some other way, as, as more critical of Zambia's uh, disastrous debt contraction from, from China. But interestingly, when Akainde Ichilema won the August 2021 election, the first diplomat he received at his house, even before he moved his offices to State House, was the Chinese, was the Chinese ambassador to, to Zambia. So already that set the tone for, for what we are, we are seeing today. But quite frankly... China, being a pragmatic player, was actually initially reluctant to commit itself to 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 the um, to the credit uh, creditors committee, uh, the committee that would would. Uh, actually reassure the IMF to to make sure that the IMF uh, unlock unlocks the 1.4 uh, billion that it should uh, grant to Zambia for the for the next three years. But at the mining in Dawa in May in May 2022, um, uh, that is about uh, a few months back here in South Africa in in Cape Town, Hakainde Ichidema, the president of Zambia, announced that finally China had agreed to to co-chair the committee with France, with South Africa being the the deputy uh, chair of that particular committee, and that was some uh, that, that was actually a diplomatic and economic and an economic coup on the part of Zambia because we needed that. Uh, we have just Zambia has just hired about forty thousand public workers, thirty thousand of whom are teachers, eleven thousand of whom are healthcare workers. So Zambia would not have done that if it did not get the relief of some sort, both from from uh, from, from China, from other external creditors in Zambia and the IMF. So this is quite an important uh, step on the part of China, and it will actually present China in a better light than it did under the leadership of uh, of uh, President Edgar Lungu in Zambia. So this is quite a commendable uh, job, and that it, it has met my expectations, but I'll put most of the responsibility on Aka in the Ichilema and the government uh, of the Republic of Zambia in general to make sure that Zambia continues to, to win investor confidence, that it continues continues to mitigate the the, the, the rate of uh, inflation in Zambia. And of course, uh, that 
uh, as I said, would be much the responsibility of the, the Zambian Republic. Let me just break down some of the numbers just before we move forward so everybody understands what we're talking about. You mentioned the external debt. So Zambia's total debt is believed to be around $33 billion. Now, these are very imprecise numbers because one of the problems with the Zambian debt is that there is reportedly quite a bit of hidden debt that was done under the administration of President Edgar Lungu. So we don't know entirely all of the loans that were made to state-owned companies that were made off the books that are not necessarily being accounted for in that $33 billion of total debt. The external debt is about half of that at $17 billion, and it's believed that the Chinese have about 6 to $7 billion of that, making them the largest bilateral creditor. But not necessarily, they don't control, well, they definitely don't control the majority of the debt, and that's one of the misperceptions in the outside world. So, Kobus, I just wanted to lay those numbers out before we go forward, but, you know, because there's oftentimes a lot of misunderstanding about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Emmanuel, um, can you talk a little bit about what the the impact of the debt crisis has been within Zambia? Like, you know, the, I, I read in, in passing that that someone was saying that um, that healthcare budgets in both Zambia has been slashed by twenty percent in you know due to this crisis. So I was wondering what kind of like what the impact has been on employment, on education, on healthcare, and so on. Well, uh, yes. Uh, just just before I answer that, let me just go back to the to the uh, numbers that uh, Eric mentioned. Yes, those numbers are quite disturbing. However, wherever however we try to to piece them, I mean, at at at, at the onset of, of of his administration, Akai Ndeshilema confessed that yes, we are in government now, but we do not really know the exact quantum of the debt. Uh, what we know this is that it was around it stood around uh, fourteen uh, billion at the time, fourteen point four billion at the time he was becoming president and then it rose to 17 billion by December 2021 and then 33 uh, billion total total debt that is still about 120% of our GDP. So those are quite uh, troubling numbers. Kobus, to come to your question, the, the debt servicing has been quite massive. Uh, in 2021, if I'm not mistaken, debt servicing was about 40, uh, 45 billion of Zambian quarter. Uh, I'm not, uh, I do not have the facility right now to quickly translate that into dollar terms. Um, in the current budget under Akainde Ichilema, that has risen to 78 billion. So so that is quite likely to to have a telling impact on on uh, on the on the uh, health sector in Zambia and then um on, on education as well, and in education, that would be quite telling because uh, uh, the the new government has just declared uh, free education in Zambia. So in the, in the in the in the long term, we will see that there will be uh, a tightening of belts, and uh, that could actually. Um, have some labor pains, if I could describe them as, as that for the new government, because an ordinary person on the street in Zambia will not understand why, for example, they'll have to pay more in terms of taxes, and why, for example, they'll have to pay more even in terms of uh, in terms of gas, uh, oil, and, and all that kind of stuff. So, people who are economically savvy, people who understand the long-term uh, impact of what the government is trying to do in terms of its, uh, if, if I can call it, its self-imposed structure adjustments, yes, an impatient citizen 
reason will likely uh, doubt the efficacy of what is happening because they'll be forced to yes to buy certain things at a, at, at at a higher rate and then to to pay more in terms of in terms of taxes. But people who really understand what is happening and that Zambia will have to uh, yes come up with all these austerity measures in order to service its debt. Yes, those who really appreciate that in the long run the economy will actually improve. As I said, uh, at the, at, I don't know if I mentioned this. Obviously, inflation at the time and HDM was coming to to Zambia was at 20, 24%. It's now below 10% at 9.7%. So those are just some of the positive effects that uh, that, that 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 we are we are we are having. But yes, in the long run, the servicing of debt will have some uh, some telling impacts on on Zambia's uh, uh, social social responsibilities, especially from the from the government side. Well, 45 billion kwacha is about 2.8 billion U.S. dollars at the current exchange rate. So that's a lot of money for Zambia that's going out the door and not being used productively to help make the Zambian economy stronger and healthier. One concern, though, that should be on the radar is that the Chinese economy is slowing and that Zambia has depended heavily on exporting copper to China. So that is one of the forecasts is that the Chinese economy is going to continue to slow. Home building is slowing. And so if the price of copper goes down considerably, that could be a complicating factor for President Hishilema in his economic recovery drive. One question for you that I have is that both sides, the United States and China, see opportunities in Zambia to gain points on the other in their struggle. You'll hear from Americans that the debt restructuring deal is really a setback for the Chinese. I don't agree with that, but that is one of the talking points that you'll hear in U.S. policy circles. At the same time, we've been watching Chinese Ambassador Du make the rounds with President Hishilema, and they opened up the Kafui water station. They've opened up a new convention center in Lusaka. Uh, There's a lot of ribbon cutting going on, a lot of handshakes and hugging going on. Uh, It looks like the Zambian-China relationship has not suffered despite the travails of the past year related to debt. How would you assess Zambia and really President Hishilema's management of the great power rivalry between the United States and China? Well, he is in a very powerful position, if powerful is a, is, a, is a correct word to use, because at the moment, the euphoria that swept him to power in August 2021 hasn't worn off, really. And the goodness about Aka and Ichinem is that he is in a very uh, positively unique position in that he enjoys uh, the, the confidence of the West and at the same time he's navigating his relation, Zambia's relationship with China in a very uh, in, in, a, in a very delicate but uh, but but good way. Um, if, you, if you if you read the profile of Aga and Ejinama, he's someone who comes from the private sector. He has, he's a consummate businessman. So because of that he understands the importance of the private sector in terms of uh, economic building of, of, any, of any country. So because of that, he retains a lot of goodwill from from the West, and that is positive, and that plays into the hands of the United States. When it comes to China, uh, Zambia's relationship with China is almost uh, intrinsic to Zambia's economic survival, largely because of the debt that we have with China, and largely because of the uh, extensive relationship that we have with China. And he's a pragmatic person. He knows that he cannot just uh, come into power and renounce all the contractions, all the contrast that uh, the, the, the Zambian government had with China, even the 
the fanfare around the Kenneth Kaunda International Conference Center. Obviously, that was a project that was started by the previous government, but he made a big meal out of it. Why? For pragmatic reasons, because he didn't want the Chinese to feel as if he's shunning them completely. So, yes, the impression that I have at the moment is that he enjoys, uh, he is exploiting the great power politics between the United States and China, but to Zambia's uh, Zambia's favor. But he has the responsibility of reassuring the Chinese that, yes, I am from the business community and I came to Zambia because the the youth that tripped Yaka and Ichidema into power in Zambia do not really have uh, this romanticization of Zambia's ideological beginnings, uh, uh, the, the Zambia's uh, ideological relationship with China that started in the in the 1960s. They want to see how does that translate into tangible uh, results and tangible benefits for Zambia. And for that, obviously, Aka and HDMI will have to bring into Zambia's confidence the, uh, the role of the private sector, but at the same time, uh, pay particular cognizance to the fact that China is an indispensable Dispensable part, uh, partner when it comes to to Zambia. So he is uh, kind of HDMI has has been uh, dealt a very good hand here, and uh, yes, it will uh, require a lot of uh, 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 diplomatic and uh, uh, poli- poli- political um, um, uh, uh, po- po- political gamesmanship, so to say, to make sure that yes, uh, in, in as much as the United States competes with China, Zambia still retains the importance that uh, it needs and obviously it retains its sovereignty and agency so yes that is the an important position in which he finds himself let's close our discussion on some of the great power competition themes that you raised earlier this week the united states unveiled its new strategy for sub-saharan africa anthony blinken came to south africa where you are to do that in pretoria Uh, You have been focusing on the Kenyan elections this week, so it's been a very busy week. But what are your broad impressions of the new U.S. strategy and in any context that it relates to China in Africa? The major cry from Africa's uh, perspective is that, um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking this, obviously, against the backdrop that I'll have to mention China at some point, uh, because the major tussle has been between the, the, the West and, uh, and China using Africa as an arena, by the way, which in itself is problematic on the, on the part of, uh, on the part of Africa. Well, I have read somewhere an East African once said, whenever the West comes to uh, China, whenever the West story comes to Africa, they come with a lecture. So we expect a lecture. But whenever China comes to Africa, we expect a clinic, a road, or, a, or even a, a, a sports stadium. So that is just the... the, the the framework, the backdrop against which a lot of African governments especially perceive the United States. So Anton Blinken's coming to Africa, coming to South Africa, set um, was against that backdrop, and a lot of people were saying, well, he's coming in order to, to counter the, the, the Russian foreign uh, minister who was, was, was in Africa. So there, is, there was no substance, in short. That's what they say. There was no substance to, uh, there's no substance to Anton Blinken's uh, coming to Africa. It is just 
so that they can undercut uh, the inroads that have been made by uh, American competitors such as China and um, and, and Russia. But when I read uh, Anton Blinken's uh, lecture when he went to the University of Pretoria, yes, he, may, he said all the right words that have to be said. Well, no one would dictate to the African continent, but what exactly uh, is, is, is happening? Yes, as, as, as he, can, he can state that, but then what exactly is happening? What is happening at the moment is that he is just trying to to um, to, to, to crank up the mudslinging that has been happening between the United States as as uh, against uh, China. So that is the impression that a lot of um, a lot of Africans would have. So this this was not for Africa. This was for China. Is what you're saying that that Blinken really is focused more on China than Africa. At the moment, the the. The timing of his visit would be that yes, he is trying in as much as he can to to undercut China's influence in China, and of course to try and convert Africa from the rhetoric that uh, the the Russian uh, foreign minister had when 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 he came to to China. So when he came to to Africa, sorry. So that is the, the the lens through which a lot of Africans are looking at Anton Blinken's visit. But then I've been speaking with with my friends who are involved in the media and the academia. They actually. Uh, have a nuanced uh, understanding of uh, of China's presence in Africa. And they look at the United States as, you know what, the United States actually has all the cards that it needs in, in, in its armor. The only thing that it is uh, it, it shouldn't do to Africa is to appear preachy. That is a word that has gained uh, a lot of uh, prominence in Africa's uh, uh, reading of the United States uh, presence in the African continent. So it, it will depend mostly on how the United States itself carries its rhetoric when uh, uh, talking to Africa. It shouldn't do as Hillary Clinton did, for example, when she visited Zambia as the Secretary of State in 2011 when it, it, she preached to Michael Sata saying China is coming to you because China wants to colonize you. Because of that, Africa usually looks at the United States as a patronizing and condescending partner. And because of that, even without doing a lot of work, China presents itself actually as a more uh, understanding partner, a partner that actually looks at Africa as a player that enjoys a lot of uh, agency and uh, does not uh, need to be preached to. So, you know, one, one of the one of the interesting kind of sentences in, in this, this, uh, this strategy document um, was that the the United States wants to support democracy? I'm paraphrasing now. Like, is, they wanted to support democracy on the continent. They worried about uh, about a democratic backsliding happening on the continent, and they they are willing to um, to support it, to support democracies with with different kind of concessions and rewards, and and to punish backsliding via sanctions. So I was wondering how you think that that kind of framing of it will play in Africa. Well. First of all, unfortunately, in the last two years, we have seen that there has been uh, retardation in terms of democratic gains in Africa, especially in West Africa, where we've seen that there is a resurgence of military rule. So yes, to call for the fortification of democracy in Africa is really a good call. Interesting that the United States should say that when two other countries that Anthony Blinken is going to visit are the Democratic Republic of Congo and Rwanda, two countries that are legally uh, two countries that are virtually almost at loggerheads at the moment and two countries whose democratic credentials are really deplorable uh, uh, to, to, to say the least. So it will really... It, it, 
indeed, it will really be interesting to see what exactly is he going to say in Rwanda. Because uh, as, as, there, there is this fanfare that is quite disturbing about Rwanda being the Singapore of Africa. This fanfare that actually glosses over what Rwanda actually does, what the Rwandan Rwanda's regime, Rwandan's regime actually doing to its own citizen and what it is doing to, to the Eastern Congo. So it will really be Emmanuel, Emmanuel, let, let me stop you. I can tell you what he's going to say to President Paul Kagame. I can tell you right now, nothing, nothing <laughs> at all, because you know what? Paul Kagame will tell him to screw off. Paul Kagame is not going to be shy about not taking a lecture from Anthony Blinken on democracy. Paul Kagame will not be shy about talking about America's shortcomings on democracy. Paul Kagame is not a guy who will, who will I know, so, so we know what <laughs> Anthony Blinken's going to do. Zero, nothing. You know, remember... Principles are subject to circumstance. Yes. That is the rule of the day. <laughs> yes, indeed. It, 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 yeah, it, it will be interesting. So you can see that he, he, he has, um, in, in South Africa, you are quite right. I, say, I also expect him not to say anything of, of, of considerably, considerable importance when it comes to democracy. He had that to say in South Africa because South Africa is a reasonably democratic country. If he had visited Zambia, he probably would have said that, yes, we're here to fortify democracy. But in Rwanda, yeah, you'll be very limited, limited in what he's. He's, he's going to say that side. Emmanuel Matambo is the research director at the Africa-China Studies Center at the University of Johannesburg and a man that we love talking to because he's just chock full of amazing insights. Emmanuel, thank you so much for your time this evening. We really appreciate it. If people want to follow what you're reading and writing, you are on Twitter. Where can they find you? Yes, please. Uh, before I give my... Uh, my, my, my address is thank you very much. It is quite an honor, and I'm always, always amazed uh, at the work that you have been doing. So thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, for people that want to follow my work, they can go to the Center for Africa China Studies website. Uh, those who cannot do that, those who want to follow me on Twitter, just go to EK Matambo, uh, at EK uh, Matambo. You can find me there. Um, on Facebook, the same, EK Matambo. And then you can follow my, uh, my, my, my engagements. It could be TV interviews, it could be podcasts such as the ones that, such as the one that I'm doing here as well. You will find all my uh, all my writings and uh, my my materials there. So once again, thank you very much for your invitation, and I look forward for for further engagements. Well, thank you so much. We're going to put links to all of uh, Emmanuel's his Twitter, the center, and also Facebook in the show notes. So if you want to follow what he's doing, I highly highly recommend it. Emmanuel, once again, thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Kobus, that was a very sobering discussion at the end about the new U.S. strategy for Africa and how Emmanuel framed it in the context of U.S.-China competition, when at the end of the day, it, it seemed to me that the Americans were trying to downplay it. You know, listen, I know the Americans have a lot of bad history. I know their politics are awful and toxic, but it... <laughs> I don't envy them because they're sometimes in a no-win situation. On the one hand, if they focus intensely on China, as they did during the Trump administration and under Mike Pompeo at the State Department, they're criticized for great power politics and, 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 and all the other stuff that we've talked about. At the end of the day, too, when they try and downplay China, as they did in this strategy, as you've talked about, the instincts of the media and the the political class and then the and the commentariat and even analysts like Emmanuel frame it still in the context of great power competition. And, and I didn't hear, and maybe I am tone deaf to this, but I didn't hear Blinken lecturing 
the South Africans, and I didn't hear that patronizing tone in a lot of the speeches. So on that front, now maybe it's there, and I think people have different sensitivities to this kind of thing, but Blinken did not sound like Clinton or Pompeo or Rex Tillerson or some of his others. I've been a longtime critic of Blinken for a number of different issues. That record is well established on a number of previous shows. So, you know, I'm not a huge supporter of of the secretary, particularly on his understanding of China in Africa. But in this particular case, I don't think he is, he's doing what he's being accused of doing. And maybe this is just what happens after you've been messing with countries for 100 years and your credibility is so shot to pieces that no matter what you try and do, people aren't going to take you seriously. Yeah, I found it interesting that he was willing to acknowledge that the U.S. has problems with on, on the democracy side at the moment as well. I know, but they do that with that flippant one line and then move on. <laughs> it's not enough. They have to do more on this. Honestly, that's a big part of the problem is it says, we have problems with our democracy and we're working on it. The fact is, we're not working on it. Well, the the, the bigger problem for me is, yeah, I mean, there's that. But the bigger problem is is that in, in this issue of, of, of democracy and backsliding and, and, and so on, the, the judgment about who is backsliding and what constitutes backsliding and what should be done about it seems to still be lodged in, in, the, in the US, you know, rather than in any kind of, kind of shared kind of platform of discussion. Um, and, you know, so, so, so that, that I think kind of raises concern, you know. Um, but yeah, you know, cause, but, but, but I, I think it's just, you know, I think we, people are also seeing the wider kind of geopolitical moment, you know, kind of it's, it's, it's mere days after the, at the moment, as we record, after the Pelosi visit to Taiwan, for example. And, you know, and, and every, every aspect of, of, of US kind of foreign policy at the moment has some kind of horse race China aspect to it, you know, so, so it, it you know, so, so I think everyone's just kind of reading, reading the room, the bigger room. Well, I think it's interesting that Emmanuel brought up the fact that he's going to the Democratic Republic of Congo and he's going to Rwanda. He is not going to give President Felix Chesikedi a big, long lecture on democracy. He just can't afford to do that. He can't afford to alienate Chesikedi, especially because of the strategic resources and the importance that the DRC plays in the broader Southern Africa strategy. So you're going to see this principle subject to circumstance play out. I do not think for a second that he's going to lecture or even bring up the issue of democracy in Rwanda, which is the irony of all ironies, okay? Interesting that in Kenya during the vote, one of the hallmarks or one of the things that we've seen is low turnout. And and that is something that is very interesting. After all the buildup of this election for the past year, all the controversies, the drama, the saga... And so as the United States is going to hang its hat on democracy in a place like Kenya, which has been one of the bastions of democracy in Africa, where the enthusiasm among the electorate to participate in the vote does not seem to be very high, what do you think that says? Yep, that's a, that's a real interesting interesting kind of data point. Um, it's also, it's, it's echoed in South Africa. So, you know, earlier this week, we, we spoke to the CEO of Afrobarometer, and he pointed out that one of, one of the few countries that actually, where we've seen a kind of a, a lack of interest in, in democracy, a lack of enthusiasm, enthusiasm about democracy, is in South Africa, like one of, one of the, the continent's, 
you know most celebrated kind of democracies in you know in terms of in terms of recent history so so it's it's a very interesting thing to watch it's i think it's it's a worrying sign but it's it's i think it's also an understandable one um, because i think a lot of people a lot of people feel that they can vote but it doesn't change anything and i think i think that's true in in many global north countries and many global south countries increasingly that's correct that is a sentiment that is also widespread in many parts of europe as well there are two other very big elections that are coming up in africa Angola and also in Nigeria. So it will be interesting to watch to see if the trends that appear to be underway in Kenya will also take place in those two countries as well in their upcoming elections. Now, this democracy angle does play into the bigger U.S.-China split, in part because obviously the Chinese, they're not huge fans of democracy in the Western construct of it, they will pervert the word for their purposes, and they will say they believe in a different kind of democracy, which is, you know, who knows what that is. But nonetheless, they they will see maybe this lack of enthusiasm for democracy as a benefit for them, because again, they are trying to change the Western-led international order to align more with their interest and open, vibrant democracies like what we've seen in the past in Kenya, not always the best thing for them. Interestingly, about Zambia, and this is where I think the United States made a huge tactical error. When President Hishinema came to Washington, Biden did not see him. And as we heard from Emmanuel, this was an election that was the poster child for the Americans about what they want. It was powered by youth, by women. It, deposed a semi-dictator. It was everything that the Americans, you know, really want in Africa. And the fact that Biden couldn't meet with Hishilema was, to me, just a massive tactical error. Instead, it was Vice President Kamala Harris who met with the president in Washington. And and I just thought that was a, a huge missed opportunity for the Americans to really bolster their case for democracy in Africa. And it just shows, eh, you know, the president can't be bothered with these kinds of things because it's an African leader. I guarantee you, if President Macron came to Washington, the vice president would not be relegated to see him. That is that that's a given in that sense. Yeah, yeah. Also, um, I'd like to say, just in relation to Kenya, um, this is there was a, a great op-ed in the New York Times a few weeks ago, um, a few days ago, uh, by Farah Stockman, um, under the title um, "Kenya's Elite Talk About American Power in the Past Tense," and it was it was this really kind of thoughtful, kind of you know thinking through this very strong focus on democracy in US foreign policy and the pressure from the US to for on on countries to be democratic which you know kind of is, is obviously is a is a very valuable thing but it's also a very complicated thing particularly in Africa where elected regular election cycles can frequently be extremely disruptive to to societies particularly as we've seen in Kenya in the past as as Emmanuel mentioned and this is really interesting and, and thoughtful kind of like meditation on on the complications of these two democracies at a moment you know kind of when when Kenya is going through this massive election um and how US power is playing out particularly also in relation to to China and this this kind of you know, very potent um, appeal that 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 Chinese central central economic planning has in, in in some African countries, where the state has played a much larger role in development and and social goods than is known that is than is normal in in many Western democracies. So you know, so so it's a really interesting kind of like like look at at the complications of that issue. Again, we don't know who has won the election in Kenya at the time of this recording. Probably by the time you listen to this show, 
a winner will be announced. It's probably not going to have a very big impact on Kenya's relations with China, regardless of who wins, because at the end of the day, the Chinese are very familiar with both of these candidates. Both candidates are establishment candidates. They talk tough about China and debt in the campaign. That is normal. That's what happens all over the world. And then once they come into office, they tend to moderate because at the end of the day, they really don't have a choice because when you owe that kind of money, you have to pay it back. Let's be very clear here on the debt levels in Kenya today. It is somewhere a little bit less than $6.5 billion out of what is now a $77, $80 billion total external debt. So we're looking at about 8% of the country's total external debt. Kenya is listed as one of the at-risk countries for Chinese debt distress in Africa. But when you take a look at the aggregate, Six, seven, eight percent is not that big. When you look at where Kenya's main creditors are, 50% is domestic, very important that they're borrowing a lot from their own economy, which is healthy. And at the same time, also they're borrowing a lot from multilaterals and the bondholders. They uh, have been priced out of the bond market, as Kobus mentioned, that it's just too expensive now. There are risk premiums put onto African debt that other developing countries and certainly global North countries don't have to pay. That is something of great frustration for a lot of activists and observers who feel that Africans are being treated unfairly. And especially because prior to the pandemic, many were managing their risks very well. And the pandemic came and the bottom fell out and they have not been able to recover. So one of the key concerns going forward is where are African governments going to get financing from? The Chinese are largely out of that space. The bondholders are largely out of that space. And the multilaterals aren't aren't giving the, the massive amounts of money that they once did. A lot of what the, the multilaterals are doing today are the stopgap measures for crisis financing. So they're not funding the big infrastructure projects that African countries need. Let's get some final thoughts to you before we wrap up. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, huge, it's a huge challenge. And, and it's, a, it's a challenge that essentially is going gonna, is gonna to require some really radical thinking in terms of, of global economics and, and, and global financing of these, of these uh, you know, of, of these projects is particularly in, in, in the context of climate change, you know, kind of because, because Africa has huge infrastructure gaps anyway, but then climate mitigation and climate, climate adaptation is, requires a whole bunch of additional infrastructure. Um, and, you know, like the, like all of this is happening against, you know, kind of against um, a, a moment in the, in the United States where, you know, kind of where there's a very, there's a, a real kind of like stridency around issues of, around Ukraine, for example. And so, you know, a, a, a few, two or three months ago, the Wall Street Journal kind of had this, this, this op-ed where they, where they were talking about this, you know, this kind of like list of shame of, of African countries who, you know, didn't vote, you know, to sanction Russia. And it was this kind of interesting moment where I'm like, wow, you know, kind of like you, you, you shaming these countries in this particular way around, about not, around not kind of falling information into formation about this, this kind of this issue in Europe. But, you know, these, some of these same countries are still struggling to try and kind of deal with the fallout from, from, from the, the 2011 kind of like NATO, NATO invasion of Libya. Which is still like destabilizing, destabilizing large parts of, of, of Africa now, um, you know, and zero zero kind of like mention of that, you know. So so it is it is this kind of like interesting moment where where you kind of you're seeing 
all of this all of this pressure on these countries but zero consideration for for the kind of pressures they face that's oftentimes asking too much of the old white guy boomers who write these things because they come from a generation where they they expected smaller developing countries to line up behind the united states because that's what happened when they were younger in the cold war with the soviets right so I think a lot of these old white guys who run the editorial pages at the Wall Street Journal, this is a world, what you're saying, is unfamiliar to them. Yeah, but, you know, they got to learn. They have the internet, you know. <laughs> yeah, but you heard it from your foreign minister, Naledi Pandor, you know, this week. She was very clear that says, we're not playing that. Mm. She said, we're not going to be bullied. Yeah. And and I don't know if the if the old white guys, the boomers at the Wall Street Journal have really paid attention to what Minister Pandora was saying and even actually take the time to listen to her. I don't think they do, to be honest with you. And that's part of the problem is, again, something that we have noticed in our exercise of doing the China Global South project is a lot of people in these global north countries they'll they'll talk about you know the importance of developing countries but they'll usually talk about it in their own interests and then they don't pay attention to it that much anymore they move on back to the bigger issues that they focus on with US China US Europe whatever so i just don't think they think about it that much but it's only going to be sustainable not thinking about it it's only going to be sustainable for for an, another few years you know kind of like it's soon soon not thinking about it won't be possible um and you know but but in but what what we what we have to see is what kind of crises we're going to encounter on the way there um you know it's um and particularly around this issue of of a lack of funding for for african infrastructure you know, particularly in relation to climate change, particularly when when Africans have almost no culpability to you know in in, in relation to climate change. So all of these things, these are these are fights that that that, that the world that fights between the global north and the global south that are going to happen. Um, and you know, we'll we'll have to see how the, how they turn out. Well, let's leave the conversation there on that depressing note. Uh, if you would like to follow all of the work that we're doing, we've got eight editors now in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East who are just doing amazing work. And if you would like to see what they're doing, go check out ChinaGlobalSouth.com. You'll see all of our news there, analysis. We've got The View from China, where we're translating what's going on on WeChat and also in the policy circles. It's really just a fantastic resource, and I'm so proud of the work that the team is doing. If you'd like to subscribe to what we're doing and to support our journalism, we would be so grateful for that. You have no idea how much it means to us as an independent, nonpartisan media company that is self-funded. This is, we rely on you guys and your support to help us. And it just is so important. Chinaglobalsouth.com slash subscribe. Subscriptions are super cheap, less than a Netflix subscription now. And for students and teachers, it's less than a Starbucks run in the US. Shocking. I keep, I can't get over how expensive Starbucks is here, Kobe. I just, that's something I'm not going to get over. Uh, so you can afford a subscription if you go to Starbucks. <laughs> and uh, also to our Patreon supporters who just really want to support the show and, and all the work that we're doing. So grateful. Again, if you would like to join that group of celebrities in our view, patreon.com slash China Africa Project. Thank you so much for that. So for Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. We'll be back again next week with another episode of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Tag us on Twitter at China GS Project and visit us at ChinaGlobalSouth.com. If you speak French, check out our full coverage at projetafriquechine.com and Afrique Chine on Twitter. That's Afrique with a K. 
and you'll also find links to our sites and social media channels in Arabic.